Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Todd Arrett, and I'm a senior regulatory intelligence expert here at Thomson Reuters. I'm happy to welcome all of you to our podcast series, which covers the exceedingly wide range of topics impacting compliance officers in financial services firms. On today's podcast, we will discuss the recent surge in suspicious activity report filings, better known as SARS. For today's discussion, we plan to cover some of the very important findings of a recently published Thomson Reuters special report, authored by me, my colleague Jacob Denman, and Brett Wolf. Unfortunately, Jacob was unavailable to join us today as he's presenting some of the same material to an in-person audience in Minneapolis, but I'm lucky to have Brett Wolf join me today. Brett is a senior AML correspondent for Thomson Reuters. For more than two decades, Brett has been on the AML beat, producing daily regulatory intelligence news and analysis to aid AML and sanctions compliance professionals. A proven investigative journalist for Thomson Reuters, Brett also has experience reporting on Justice Department efforts to combat money laundering, terrorist financing, corruption, offshore tax evasion, and non-compliance with the Bank Secrecy Act. Brett also contributes to Reuters News. An investigative article he co-authored in 2012 helped Reuters win the General Excellence Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers. Brett's reporting that revealed the tremendous money laundering risks banks face when dealing with foreign affiliates that lack adequate AML measures was also featured in a Netflix documentary titled Cartel Bank. Welcome, Brett, and thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to join you. So today we're going to be talking about our special report, which was published in early June. I mentioned it in the introduction. We're going to touch on some very important, interesting issues and aspects that we uncovered in our special report, which is based on the the surging numbers of SARS filings. The report can be found in the episode notes and also on Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence and Thomson Reuters Institute, and also on other social media outlets such as LinkedIn. It's a very reader-friendly report at around 40 pages with plenty of illustrative graphs and tables and charts that uh, tell the interesting story about the surge we are seeing in financial crime and financial crime reporting um, through SARS filings. It also touches on critically important issues from human exploitation, financial crime, fraud, and pandemic-related frauds. So those are all the issues that Brett and I are going to try to touch on today in our discussion. It covers the period from 2014 through 2023. Essentially, we crunched the numbers and we downloaded all this data directly from FinCEN, the the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network Division of the U.S. Treasury, where it showed 3.6 million filings of suspicious activity reports in 2022. In March of this year, of 2023, we hit a monthly all-time high of 351,000 filings. Within these filings, there are often multiple red flags or warning flags or designations 
um, noted in the filings for a total of 9.3 million fraud designations in 2022. That, that's an increase from roughly 5.5 million in 2019. So if we can paint a picture, you can see that is the type of spike in fraud or suspicion of fraud and actual financial crimes that we're talking about today. So to kick things off real quick, let me ask Brett, what areas or aspects of the report were you most surprised by? And, you know, what are industry sources kind of telling you about, you know, the report? Sure, Todd. Thank you. Since I cover this beat on a daily basis, and as you noted, have been doing so for years, I can't say that there were a whole lot of surprises per se. Some of the numbers were a bit high, but it was interesting to see the entire picture painted all together at once, kind of in a, a holistic report. Um, I, I would say one statistic that stood out to me uh, was that more than 7,600 financial institutions participate in 314B information sharing, bank-to-bank uh, -bank information sharing, uh, which was created by the USA Patriot Act of 2001. I hadn't realized uh, that quite that number of institutions were participating uh, because there's an ongoing criticism of financial institutions that apparently many of them are not participating. But it's, it's an incredibly important aspect of, of better detecting financial crime, um, you know, both between banks via 314B and on a larger scale with the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. Uh, that law, which is also referred to as AMLA, insisted that the government share more information with financial institutions. And I think our report... Um, really makes clear the degree to which financial institutions can amply share information that's vital if they're given some kind of information uh, to start with, some kind of intelligence from the government. Um, so I think probably the, the, the lesson here is that information sharing is key to, to all of this, to, to effective SAR filing. And I think that's that comes out in our report. This incredible surge that we've seen, particularly in, you know, call it 2020, 21 and 22. Um, there's probably a lot of, you know, factors or contributing factors to the surge. Um, some of it pandemic related shift to digital banking. I think critics or skeptics may say defensive filings or potentially it's simply uh, regulators, um, let's say, encouraging more filings, you know, w via regulatory warnings, um, you know, saying be on the lookout for this. Um, what's, what's your take? Is, is, is that accurate that we have kind of a combination of all the above that are contributing to these surging numbers? Yes, I, I definitely believe it is a combination. And, you know, when you look at the pandemic-related frauds um, and the the tidal wave of SARS that were filed during that period, you know, absolutely bank regulators were, were leaning on financial institutions. Um, I'm sure examiners, you know, were, were looking at the numbers of SARS filed 
uh, were reminding the banks, you know, that th there's a whole lot of potential for frauds right now. And even, you know, laying out what those frauds may look like and what the red flags may look like. So, you know, you had a, a lot of government intelligence being fed to institutions. You had a lot of regulatory pressure and you had, you know, financial institutions that were involved, for example, in the Paycheck Protection Program, the, the PPP loans. Um, and institutions were benefiting from delving out those loans. Uh, so there was quite a bit of pressure on them to look for fraud where they could spot it. Um, but going in, the government and financial institutions were very well aware that there was going to be a, a very sizable chunk of this money going out that was going to be going to fraudsters. Um, but at the time, you know, as we recall, there, there were great concerns about the economy faltering even uh, more badly than it did. So it needed to be done, but financial institutions, it created a lot of work for them. Just to give our readers uh, a glimpse of what the, call it uh, pandemic related, that we would call directly pandemic related um, numbers looked like, there was a category called suspicious receipt of government payments. These would be like unemployment benefits, food assistance programs, things like that. And obviously the PPP that, that Brett mentioned. So those type of government payments where there's suspicion of fraud, if you go back to 2014 through 2019, you averaged anywhere around four or 5,000 filings a year. Pretty consistent flat line, maybe a very modest uptrend, but we were talking around 5,000 in 2019. In 2020, it, it jumped to 75,000. In 2021, 148,000, before then tapering back to 42,000 in, in 2022. So you're talking about, you know, 20x or more than 20 times, you know, increase in, in these numbers where they eventually plateau or you know level out remains to be seen but they're still on pace for for another you know solid year this year what's your take on that Brett that the, these investigations in these areas will continue for some time is is that right exactly and i i think that will continue to drive uh, very high sar figures as the Justice Department or as prosecutors reach out to financial institutions during their investigations and ask for information on particular clients, I, I think that's going to continue to prompt financial institutions to realize, for instance, that they have a problematic customer and, uh, and make SAR filings as a result. Uh, so I think we're going to continue to see these numbers for a few years to come, I, I would predict. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. 
So let me let me shift gears to another area that I think was kind of a di- a direct result of the pandemic was elder fraud. Overall financial crime numbers, you know, are surging and the th- one thing we tried to do in the report was to substantiate a suspicious activity report is as its name implies a suspicion of illicit activity we actually dug into some um, fbi data and uh, the ftc the federal trade commission and other sources of actual crime data to to support the thesis that underlying crimes are actually increasing the uh, internet crimes reported from the Department of Justice and FBI are surging to all-time highs. And one area that is particularly vulnerable is elder fraud or, you know, the elderly population. And some of this may have been attributed to the pandemic where they no longer were going to their banks. They were forced to um, open online digital banking accounts and, you know, the susceptibility to phishing scams, clicking on the wrong thing has caused a massive spike in elder fraud. Um, One other area that was really fascinating was check fraud. I recall, Brett, you wrote something earlier this year about postal fraud, mail theft, where people or bad actors are stealing checks out of the mail. Those numbers went from roughly, call it check fraud, 285,000 uh, suspicious filings in 2020 to 685,000 in 2022. Um, are we reading that data correctly, Brett, that there's a, a big problem with elder fraud and check fraud that's happening through the Postal Service? Oh, yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, FinCEN has put out an alert warning financial institutions to, to be on the lookout uh, for specific red flags and for just activity related to check fraud in general. It's nothing new. I mean, check fraud has always been a big issue, um, but most certainly um, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, uh, there's just been a a very significant spike. And I think that is something uh, we'll also continue to see moving forward. One of the other areas that we thought was pretty important that we touch on was human smuggling and human trafficking. Um, or call it human exploitation, because there's also a child exploitation component to this. The sharp increases are are very concerning. I mean, clearly there's issues with the southern border in the United States, but what else could potentially be driving, let's say, the, the human smuggling and human, human trafficking, you know, surges in numbers that we're seeing? Sure. Well, I think a big part of it is that this has been a focus for law enforcement. Um, I can recall, you know, roughly 2012, um, somewhere around that time, uh, one particularly large U.S. bank uh, developed a program along with Homeland Security Investigations uh, to focus on human trafficking and to try and lay out some red flags Uh, as to what human trafficking red flags may look like so that other financial institutions could, you know, begin to look through their own data. And I think ever since then, everyone realized that this was a very valuable program because human trafficking, the enslaving of human beings, is obviously a heinous crime. And when all of these different parties began to cooperate, I think 
you know, there's been a lot of progress made in terms of figuring out what this illicit activity looks like from a financial perspective. And I think it's that awareness that has driven the increase in SAR filings. I think financial institutions are just able to do a better job doing their part to combat human trafficking. Just to clarify for the audience, um, you know, sometimes the the terms trafficking versus smuggling get used interchangeably by, you know, incorrectly. So trafficking is essentially modern day slavery. We're talking about people using force to exploit individuals, whether it's for labor purposes or, you know, sex trafficking, um, where people are being held against their will. Smuggling, on the other hand, is more of the transportation or the facilitation where the participants are knowingly and willing to pay a smuggler to essentially help them cross a border or, you know, voluntarily paying these, uh, these people to facilitate. So the, the real big difference is the, the trafficking, call it, is the more evil of the two where you're talking essentially modern day slavery. Sure. Although human smuggling rings will often uh, bring somebody across the border and then uh, hold them hostage and demand additional funds from their families. So, you know, b- both are, are, are fairly evil crimes. I, yeah, it, I, I was just going to clarify. I didn't mean to, to lessen one versus the other because, they, because there is a lot of crossover. Um, but just to clarify the difference in the terms. Um, and yes, you are correct. Smuggling often um, evolves into a form of trafficking or slavery where, uh, you know, the, the, we, we won't give you the rest of your papers or whatever it is, or we're going to hold ransom against another individual until you continue to make payments or whatever. There, there can be a lot of manipulation. It, it's never clean, I guess. Um, so real quick, one of the last areas, we, what we did is we, we covered a lot of different industries in the report and talked about the surges in filings. Um, Probably the one outlier in the report that um, didn't surge with the pandemic or in recent years was, um, you know, terror financing. Um, wh- what are your thoughts there, Brett? Um, why was this an outlier? Or what, what are your thoughts on, you know, terrorism-related SARS filing? We still have global terrorism. It's still a problem. Um, you know, why, why are those numbers, you know, flatlining or maybe even trending down a little bit? Absolutely. And to be honest, they've always been low. And I, I think the reason for that is is fairly simply uh, the fact that financial institutions only know so much. And absent some kind of intelligence from the government that certain individuals need to be looked at, law enforcement can submit what are called 314A requests to financial institutions via FinCEN. Um, And financial institutions then have to look at their accounts and see if they have any accounts or transactions linked to the individuals in question. And those 314A requests can be related to terrorism or money laundering. And, you know, in those cases, the institution might have some kind of insight into the fact that activity is related to to terrorism or a financial institution may see activity 
um, involving someone who's been designated by OFAC, um, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, uh, over terrorist activity, or they see someone who is linked to someone who's been designated for their role in terrorist activity uh, by the government. But absent some kind of government intelligence um, labeling someone a terrorist or you know, one of your customers being connected to someone who's been labeled a terrorist, it's very difficult for a financial institution to know what the exact activity is they're seeing. They may just see something that doesn't make sense and or that looks suspicious. Um, uh, maybe going uh, funds being transferred uh, into a jurisdiction with very where where terrorists are active. And, you know, in transactions that look like transactions that have been shown in the past to be terror finance activity. Uh, but in many cases, I think what financial institutions have to do is they look at this transaction and it could be terror finance, but they, they don't make a leap and just assume that it is. Instead, they'll file suspicious activity reports in the other category where they just they get lumped in with other inexplicable activity as opposed to waving that big red flag and yelling, we think we see terror finance, because that's essentially what you're doing when you file a terror finance SAR. And, you know, those are the situations where you're probably also picking up a phone and reaching out to your law enforcement contact uh, to let them know about it, given the seriousness. But for that reason, uh, because it's so hard to pin down terror finance activity, I think the numbers will always remain low. Thank you, Brett. That was that was very informative. Thank you all for listening today to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As always, we hope you found it both interesting and useful. Be sure to check out our special report, which is available in the episode notes through Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence, Thomson Reuters Institute, and other social media outlets such as LinkedIn. Last but not least, we would very much appreciate it if you would take the time to review the podcast. And in particular, please let us know or give us any suggestions for future topics to be discussed on Compliance Clarified. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.